Jay here. This episode might require a little more context, and so I wanted to record a bit of a longer introduction to give you that. So every year I work with a small group of people, and we put together circuit board conference badges for a Chicago hacker conference called ThoughtCon. Think of the kinds of badges you wear at a normal conference and then imagine if they had blinky LEDs and wireless internet, speakers, buttons, and other doodads on them that allow people to play games on them. Almost like a handheld console. The build process for these badges takes almost a year from circuit board design to firmware programming, acquiring materials, and sourcing fabrication. The project usually runs a cost of anywhere between fifty dollars and $70,000, and we end up making about 2,000 units. This all has been made even harder by the ongoing pandemic and, particularly, supply chain issues. So in this episode of This Should Work, I interview Rob Rarig and Rudy Ristich, my collaborators on the project. We discuss supply chain shortages, circuit board design, and what we think this all could mean for the near-term future of the development of badges like ours. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So we are here with Rob Rarig and Rudy Ristich, uh, the, the guys from the ThoughtCon badge team. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be part of the badge team for ThoughtCon here in a second. But first of all, thank you guys so much for uh, for joining us this this time. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yep, likewise. Thank you. So so I've had both of you guys on before. We've talked about ThoughtCon. We've talked about your other you know personal professional work. Uh, but this this episode, this session is is particularly focused on the badge because uh, a lot of interesting things happened in the production. As probably some of the people listening know, there's a lot of um, supply chain disruptions right now, and that affects electronics. And so that affected a lot of the the project that we were working on. But um, before we dive into that too much, I think for people who are maybe uninitiated. Uh, just talking a little bit about ThoughtCon and things like that might be be a good way to kick us off. So, what do you guys want to just talk about about ThoughtCon a little bit? Maybe our our three peat gold badge or team member uh, Rob and and Rudy. You've been involved with ThoughtCon for a long time, so if you want to jump into what is what is ThoughtCon? Um, you know, I had Jonathan on last week. He talked about it, but what does it to mean mean to you guys this event? Uh, so I can I can start. Um, for me, I got I started attending ThoughtCon in I guess ThoughtCon nine. I don't remember what year that was, but it was pretty recently. Um, and for me, it was just a chance to get to know people who were here in Chicago, uh, or when I was in Chicago. I'm no longer in Chicago, but when I was in Chicago, it was a chance to get to know other hackers and people who thought similar ways that I did. Um, that were in and out of the city and it's a more intimate conference. So it did have a lot of uh, local character to it and a lot of opportunity to, to meet people that you didn't really know existed around you uh, in such a, such a big city. Uh, and just to feel like there was like a, a, a bigger scene within the city. So it was just, I mean, that to me, I, there were definitely good talks that were going on, but I found that I got more engrossed by the company that also was at the 
the conference that I get to talk to. And that's also how I met both of you. For yeah, better man. or worse, maybe. Sorry. Yeah, Go ahead, Rudy. Absolutely. For, for better or worse. On my <laughs> side, uh, you know, I've been in information security for the, the bulk of my career. And uh, information security conference scene is, is pretty robust, but there hadn't been anything in Chicago since uh, Nick started back in, oh gosh, it's probably like 20, 20, 2009, 2010 or so. And I've been going to them since the very first one, which was... I mean, if you, if you call ThoughtCon an intimate conference today, uh, the, the time it was at Joe's on Weed Street Far was extremely intimate. I think it was like 300 people. And as far as info stock conferences go, that's it's super small. And, and you know, for me, it's a great way to kind of keep up with uh, not only folks who are in the same profession in town, uh, but also, you know, would come into town uh, from that, that kind of conference scene, as it were, and, and kind of have yet another time of year where we can catch up with those folks. And then uh, somehow uh, the the badge project fell into the lap of us through Workshop 88. I, I forget exactly how it actually came to us, but um, you know, given my, my background in electronics design before I got into security, it was like you know, the perfect opportunity for an outlet for that type of work where it was usually just hobby stuff uh, to take it into kind of a, a production um, scenario, which is, which is fun and challenging. So. So, so Rudy, that 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 explains Thoughtcon and explains also a little bit about how you got involved with making making these conference badges. <clears throat> um, Rob, how about you? What what got you not just involved in Thoughtcon, but but in in all the the badge work? Yeah, so my my background is engineering, electrical engineering, and computer engineering. Um, I also have a degree in music engineering, and when I would go to conferences and the badge scene started to pop up. Um, I saw this as an opportunity to like hack new things because there's, there's only so much hardware you can kind of hack at a conference. A lot of times it's very much, uh, it's the, the soft side focused, uh, and not as hard as I would like. Um, so I looked for any opportunity I could find hardware that I would be able to hack on. And I think that really started to take off as people were creating new badges that did different, uh, things and bringing them to conference with lights and, uh, different add-ons and peripherals, and essentially they're just dev boards. So I would find ways to to repurpose them to do new and exciting things that they weren't really intended to do, kind of taking the hacker mindset to hardware that was available. Um, so I kind of just forced my way into the scene in that people would turn out uh, really cool things. Uh, I think the, one of the first ones was uh, the Anod.xor Bender badge um, years and years ago, the original one. And I saw opportunity to add new application to it. So for that, I made a, a spectrum analyzer, um, just trying to add new character to badges. And from there, I took badges and made them into, uh, I, I did a couple uh, projects where I would make badges into um, sequencers and other music uh, creation devices. Um, so it was just a lot of finding new ways to make the badges playful uh, in an unintended way. So what I one thing that I, I've noticed um, just kind of having having paid attention to a lot of people who make these different kinds of badges is that they they run across an entire spectrum. So you've got a lot of people who maybe they're going to a conference and um, they want to make their own badges. Defcon's particularly known for this, but I think it happens at other cons too, where people show up with their own custom made things, not just the the badge that you get for going to the conference. And these things run the spectrum from 
something that's a, an art piece, I guess, more than than anything else. You know, it's it's for aesthetic reasons almost solely that it exists to um, to platforms that are a very puzzle driven. Um, you know, capture the flags are very popular in the hacking community, and so I think that drives a lot of this this demand for people who make puzzles or games for the badges. Um, and then you've got some other interesting ones that are very like technically oriented as well. And so they're, it's, it's more of a, a technical feat than it is an aesthetic feat or puzzle or game based and, and everything in, you know, mixed in, in between. So I, you know, I guess my question for, for you guys is, um, you know, on that spectrum, what, like what are what are people really is there a commonality what are people experimenting with that seems to be the same across that spectrum or are all they are they all using the medium to express themselves in different way i just i'm just trying to give people who are listening and may have never heard of um hardware badges for conferences or badge life or anything like that i'm trying to give them an idea of what like why are people doing this um given that there's such a broad range of things that they're producing I mean, from my opinion, I think it's a lot of folks are, especially in the badge life part of the scene, they're, they're doing a lot of it because they can. And uh, this uh, ability to design and produce uh, PCBs, particularly that, that become art, has become uh, relatively low barrier to entry versus what it might have been like 15 to 20 years ago. And then, you know, what, what is it to me when I do this project? I mean, honestly, I'm so greedy that it's a lot of those things that you mentioned. I try to make uh, our project a lot of those things for a lot of people. Like, But for me, what's super compelling is there's a lot of people who aren't into working with hardware or hardware hacking, and we're giving them a platform that's that's compatible with the Arduino framework, which isn't like the most technically bougie thing to do, but it at least gets people a low barrier to entry to start uh, working with, with uh, circuits as a material and, and designing systems around the badges. And then we also incorporate, you know, the parts of the puzzle because uh, John or, or Saki Bomb is very um, uh, open to having us integrate uh, the work that we do with the work that he does on the puzzle experience. And then, you know, for those people who are just there to attend, it's 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 like a fun toy, like a blankie, which I think is what, you know, Jay, you're in, you and your team of, of students have brought to the project is, is this element of, um, of playfulness that wasn't there when we started. And since you've been involved, it's been like a big part of it. So, Yeah, I, I have to definitely echo a lot of what Rudy just said. I think the playful aspect, people want to, there, there's definitely an appeal of coming to a conference and having something that you can play with. that has some, some challenge aspect to it in a very game slash playful way. Um, they also, I find a lot of commonality is just making something very flashy. Uh, and I'm talking like physically flashy where there's LEDs that are flashing and, um, I, that probably also adds to the, the playful aspect. And that kind of encourages when you add challenges to the, to the mix with that, where you unlock more flashiness, um, to your badge, it, it gets a lot of, uh, crowd involvement, but personally, I think, um, there is a, a huge art aspect. I mean, all this stuff is is much cheaper than it was ten years ago, um, especially making PCBs. So having having that process be a lot lower um, barrier to entry, like Rudy was saying, um, I think that's part of the reason we're seeing such a 
such a boom in this sort of thing. What's the what's the difference between something like this and let's say uh, like a one off design? You know, uh, game developers conference GDC has <clears throat> a segment every year called Alt Control, where people might take uh, an Arduino microcontroller and put some wires in it and hook them up to sensors and actuators and things like that. And then that gets shown at the conference, like a, like a, you know, a one-off kind of platform. So, so I think there's also a distinction here between this kind of one-off notion and, and this is going to get into a lot of things that we're about to talk about, which is parts shortages and things like that, which is the difference between one-off and making, you know, 2000 of something or even 100 of something and how how that how does that affect the way that you express yourself um so if i'm making you know like i said this one-off platform the sky is basically the limit as far as what i can source because i don't have to worry about tons and tons of different pieces but if i'm making a lot of something that affects my art uh, so what's what what effect does that have, and how do you guys see that changing how you think about making these kinds of pieces? Yeah, I think there hasn't up until recently, up until the last year or two, there hasn't really been a big challenge with that. Um, one of the benefits with with these conference badges being so appealing is people will pay a decent amount of money for us for a design and that's why people could still make whatever they wanted, have whatever kind of one-off design they wanted, but still be able to afford all of the parts and assembly and production that go into it. Um, with, with this part shortage, that's where things start to get a little bit interesting and you have to be a bit more thoughtful in design. It's been difficult to judge how that has played, um, has really played into all of the, the badge creation scene. Um, just because DEF CON hasn't, well, it was in person this past year. I didn't go out there, but from my understanding, there there hasn't been a ton of um, a, a ton of indie badges popping up around. Um, and I suspect it has to do a lot with with this part shortage uh, and production issue going on right now. Um, but I also, I, I personally love seeing um, one-off designs and things that are meant for. I, I think there should be more designs where they take into account, like how can you do something really neat um, and, but for very cheap that would scale up. Um, I'm personally, I, I have some, I'm scared of that somewhat. And that's why I like to do smaller things and like rely on other people's design. They do the hard part of manufacturing some intense uh, uh, design with a, with already a dedicated MCU and all that. And then I just find uh, a couple components I can add to it to, to enhance its uh, capabilities. But um, but I think I think there's I, I think there's there might be a lot of a lot more uh, change coming with with the whole part shortage because it's not really going away soon. Yeah, unfortunately, Rudy, what do you what do you want to you want to jump in? Yeah, I, you know, I think the one thing that people might not realize about the, the type of projects that, that we do is is the odd volume. I guess I guess you could say is uh, you know, if if you're producing a product, you, you typically do a prototype run, 
which which is like called a short run, which is somewhat common in, in the circles, but you're typically not doing something on the order of like 1500, 1800, 2000 of them. Uh, and then on the other side, when you're ready to actually like produce a product, which most of the manufacturers that we have to work with, that's, that's the type of work that they want because it kind of guarantees time on their machines, uh, guarantees them revenue, guarantees them consistent work over time. And what we're bringing is you know, something that's margin, it's very, very much different every single time we have a project that's going on. So every iteration is is something that's not quite a, a prototype run or a short run, but definitely doesn't warrant a production run. So it makes it um, a, a little bit more challenging to you know both find the volume of, of pieces that you want, but then also like find the right time on the machine at the you know at the right time to hit deadlines and everything like that. So that, that's what's curious to me about the project, having done other types of uh, electronics work in, in various capacities, is just how unique it is. Not that you would create this like piece of art and then replicate it two thousand times, which which isn't extremely common unless you're talking like you know I, I think the best analogy in the art world is like a one-off print or a signed print where it's like spray paint or screen art or something like that which there are stuff there that do that kind of stuff but when you're creating something that's very precisely replicated you know by a machine over and over again that that's something unique to this type of work yeah i mean you know even just the the challenges of buying uh of of acquiring like if you're doing a one-off thing you know it might a hundred dollar component or not that they too many of them exist or anything like that, but is is no big deal. But the the kind of things that you can choose, I think, for some of these projects is very interesting. So why don't we jump into the the parts shortages? Because I think that this is interesting, and for those people who are paying who've been paying attention um, to um, you know their inability to buy a car uh, in any reasonable amount of time, for instance, I think that they've noticed the effects at the consumer level, but. That affects all of us downstream. And, you know, even jokingly, I think we said at the outset of the conference, you know, this was the reason you couldn't buy a car. It's nice to think that that might be true, but it's probably not. Um, but what's what's going on with, with all of the, the electronics component shortages? Um, and how did that affect, Rob, I know I, you dealt with this a lot. You tried to design the board in such a way that the components would be available. How did that affect the, the overall layout of the board? I think it's it's probably worth starting out noting that we started the design of this uh, back in, was it 2019 or? Like right before the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah it was 2019, I guess, fall of 2019, I think, or right around then. Um, so at the time, there wasn't any part shortages. Everything kind of seemed to be available. And we went into that with with that mentality. And we worked on this up until, uh, up until, well, up until the, the day of the conference. But um, I think through the first through prototypes, I did a, a handful of prototypes. And for those listening, I Rudy and Jay had a pretty good um, setup of the hardware uh, going in. So I took a lot of that and just tried to add a little bit of new flavor to it for, for this year's badge. Um, but I went in there like thinking that anything was going to be available. Um, so we did a couple prototype runs, I think, probably about two of them um, with no challenge uh, would get small quantities of PCBs fabricated. And then I would assemble them in house. And we even had enough of the design set up that we could start getting them out to students to start working on games um, and playing with the hardware. Uh, We also, luckily at the time, placed a large order for LEDs after we had proven that the LEDs were possible. Um, 
And while that six month lead time, or yes, about six month lead time seemed pretty wild at the time. Um, and that was just an average lead time because we ordered so many LEDs directly from the manufacturer uh, for a very special uh, reverse mount uh, RGB LED that is just difficult to get. Uh, luckily, we placed that then because then we, we got it by the summer, but, um, but that was only the beginning of the, the part shortage. Uh, so a lot of the design stayed the same up until we really got serious, uh, I guess, uh, earlier this year, uh, earlier 2021 for the, the conference in October. Because um, things were just changing. We, we were changing some of the stuff on the silk screen. We were changing some stuff last minute for possible hardware challenges. Um, but I think the the majority of stuff came, I think, earlier this summer when we really got serious about doing um, the full production run of the badges. And um, we went to look at a, the part selection. I think I started sweating maybe around like April or May. I started sweating okay. um, and just kind of like not wanting to look at DigiKey or Mouse or anything because I didn't want to see what quantities were. And then I finally like ripped that Band-Aid off and I was like, oh, shoot. Um, and it only got worse because I thought we weren't in that bad of shape. And then we'd start to make some progress and then all of a sudden something else would go out. And I think there was one time where uh, we had a we had maybe five or six. We got our first quote back from Assembly House and uh, that we were getting a quote from. And they were telling us how I think six different parts they weren't able to acquire. So then we had to quickly go back to the drawing board. And, and they weren't just like simple parts. They were like our LED driver, um, the accelerometer, uh, and then there's like other passive components too. But um, it just, we quickly acquired whatever we could to see what was in stock, tested it out. If it worked, uh, we just pivot to using that part instead. Um, but I think it, we had to start, uh, there were some times where we had to pay a little bit more than we would have liked for parts uh, or for components just to, to get, to avoid having to do a major design change to the PCB. Yeah. And I, I think that overall component inflation, I guess we'll, we'll term it inflation on components was, was something like 20, you know, probably 18 to 20% or so based on the back of Mac and math that I had. And, uh, you know, a lot of times it wasn't even like, could we go back to the drawing board? It was just, you know, their, their outfits, um, you know, they're are picking up things like um, voltage regulators, uh, knowing that they're such a common component that they can corner the market on those and, and make a profit. So that we actually saw some of that activity on some of the components that we were using. And, you know, luckily, Rob, with your foresight on, on some of the part selection that was available in multiple packages, we were able to mitigate that pretty quickly. But, um, you know, what's most unique, I think, this year is that the you know th there's some definite manipulation of the market on, on certain very common parts that uh made it prohibitively not prohibitively expensive but just more expensive to produce this than originally um budgeted and then uh, beyond that i mean it, it's uh it's not the first time that we've uh we've been in a position where the supply at the the suppliers like the wholesale suppliers like DigiKey and Mouser are, are typically intended for, you know, very small runs for, for people doing prototypes and everything. They don't stock to like manufacturer quantities, which you typically get direct from manufacturers on, on long lead times. And the very first one that we did uh, had like an 
eight by five array of LEDs, the single LEDs. And it was kind of uh, basically like um, a ray casted type thing where we would display a marquee. And when we ordered those uh, from DigiKey, we ran them out of supply and actually got uh, an email through our DigiKey rep about someone at Philips that wanted to talk to us about why we were using that LED uh, because it had stopped like some other projects that people were dependent upon those parts on. So the, the whole like part thing is always something you need to take into uh, into account in these type of projects because something that might be there one day or one week could be completely gone the next. And it's hard to have a, uh, a vision on what, what's, what's at the end of that supply train driving the demand and, you know, are you competing with uh, components for other, you know, larger players, right? So. You know, so, so there's, there's a, there's an, there's something interesting in here, I think, which is that, you know, Rob, you'd mentioned that um, it, you, you'd seen fewer indie badge makers, you know, in this past year, uh, at least at DEF CON. Um, and <clears throat> like if we were to step back a couple, you know, uh, uh, several years ago, the, the way that I got into design is, is through a, a game design company called Lunar Giant that I joined. And the reason that we were able to get in, that we were able to run our own small independent game studio is because the tools were readily available and super cheap, right? So um, uh, at that time, um, you know, the the platforms that we were using were uh, you know, freely available, publishing. We didn't have to worry about big box stores. We'd be able to go through, you know, online publishers to, to distribute our games. So we didn't have to worry about investments there. And, you know, we had just started to see, you know, I think I think Vice had written the Badge Life article, had written an article about Badge Life in 2019, based on the DEFCON uh, scene in that. And so it had just started to gain this recognition. And then kind of like the, 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 the rug gets pulled out from under it a little bit. And I'm wondering what you guys think is, is like, what is the, this is, this is a, a, a problem that, you know, you wonder if the, the, the demand is there and the people want to, you know, there, there are people who want to make these things but it's it's just hard, you know, for for people to do this stuff. I mean, thank goodness we'd already had, you know, kind of like a, a proven platform, and you know, two you guys are incredibly experienced in in you know the 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 design and sourcing of parts and things like that. But I think a lot of people are just tinkerers who want to get involved in this kind of stuff. And what do they what do they do if they want to get involved right now and, and how do they overcome some of these obstacles and what does it mean for, you know, for this, this larger group that was, was really gaining, gaining steam up until about, you know, two years ago. Yeah. I think, I think that, I don't think the, I don't think like the indie badge scene is going to go away anytime soon. Um, I do think it's somewhat on pause right now, but um, I think there's, there's a couple approaches to this one. You kind of just sit back and you'd be like, all right, this is time to just take some time for myself and, and, uh, and, and not try to go as hard for a little bit until this kind of passes over. Another one is just do like a lower quantity run. Um, since you either going to pay a little bit more for things or you're just not going to be able to get the quantities you want to do to do large uh, production runs of anything. So you might just do a smaller quantity, um, or the other approach is you just have to plan a lot further out. So it's not like parts are impossible to procure. It just takes a lot of time. Um, and lead times are 
we're looking at over a year, over 52 weeks. Um, I was looking, I was doing some part research today and I was seeing stuff with uh, marked over 99 weeks. Uh, and that's to say that like that, there's a note next to it. It's like 99 is not even on the low side or not even, not even on the high side. It's the low side. Um, we think it's going to be longer than that. So if you plan out long enough, you can get what you want. You just have to then be willing to wait for, for the, the lead time for parts to be available or to ship. Um, so yeah, you can play the long game and see. I'd venture a guess that the lead time field is only two digits. So 99 is probably like the exactly. max they can go. <laughs> no one ever anticipated it take more than two years to, to get any specific part. And then if it takes you two years at the end of that, what difference does it make? Because the technology's moved on. Um, things, things have evolved and there's newer stuff, better stuff available probably. So you gotta, I, I, I've got to think though, that there's, there's, you know, where there's a problem, there's an opportunity and it seems like, you know, if there's all of this, this desire to make these sorts of things um, and there's no, at least that we can see right now, end in sight with, with some of these shortages, what's the, what's the opportunity here? What should people be looking towards? What should they be doing differently to either produce the things that they want? Or I think as Rudy's said in the past, you know, where the, who, where the pick and shovel uh, salespeople <laughs> who can, who, who, who are, who should be developing something to to help address this this huge not just with badges of course badges is not this huge need but i mean we can't even get cars so like where's the where's the where's the, where's the opportunity here and how do how do how do people who are you know making these pieces is, is it really it's just weight it's it's it, i think any way it looks it sounds like it's just weight there's well, gotta be something else pivot a little bit yeah um, there it's not there's not the case isn't that there's no there's no controllers available. Um, the case is that the most desirable ones are off the shelf uh, and you can't get them. So it kind of goes down to if you are desperate enough or you want to be creative enough and, and be resourceful enough, uh, you might transition to using, I don't know, not the, the latest 32-bit ARM Cortex M whatever, and you might pivot and use like a, a 16 or 8-bit processor, um, something that might not be as capable. You might have to do a little bit more uh, low-level programming in order to get the features that you would want. Um, it's just not going to be as easy. Yeah. I'll uh, draw the analogy to engineering in Cuba, basically. Like they, they take things like make antennas out of lunch trays and they have all these old 1950s cars where they're constantly either like fabricating parts, classic parts, or recycling junk parts because that they're under heavy constraint and that's what they have to do. I, I find that stuff extremely interesting. And I think that's, um, you know, a part of part of a, a good way to pivot and shift is, you know, see what you can do with not the latest and greatest, uh, and then realize that you're probably over horsepowering, over engineering a lot of your projects. Um, but I mean, going back to the picks and shovels type thing, I think like, you know, the, the best opportunities in, in a situation like this, and I think there's, there's moves being made in that direction is more localized manufacturing and, and fabrication of things, which I, I think is, um, I, I'm seeing a you know, handful more people, you know, amateur bloggers do things like, um, actual silicon fabrication, you know, at the transistor level here, which is something that, 
um, you know, I actually did like a design um, curriculum, self-study design curriculum on, on making my own microprocessor when I was an engineering student. And our, our cycles on that were, were three semesters, like so basically a year and a half. And um, people now have the capability to kind of do that self development of transistors, uh, you know, like in a, in a garage lab, the same way, you know, we were doing the same thing with PCBs about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, because we didn't want to, you know, we, we basically develop and enter our own PCBs because the turn times were either prohibitively expensive or, or too long to get the project done. So, if, you know, you want to knock something out in the weekend, you can use some crude methods to do that. Um, I think the opportunity is finding a way to take those crude methods and make them a little bit more accessible um, rather than having to buy like super expensive machinery, like the kind of things we're seeing with um, like 3D printing and the other digital fabrication tech that's become more democratized over the last decade. So. Yeah, there's, you know what, this, so there's a very interesting, this reminds me of an interesting piece I read recently um, by a guy named, uh, by a person named Robin Sloan uh, called the slab and the permacomputer. And the, the, the juxtaposition is that the slab is what we think of as cloud computing right now, but calling it a slab kind of gives it a, a physical, like a, an idea in your head that, that makes it more physical and real than what the cloud is, right? Because of course there are, you know, warehouses full, uh, you know, that are extremely kept, extremely cool, full of, you know, rows upon rows upon rows of servers and calling it the cloud kind of makes it feel like this ephemeral thing and calling it a slab really makes it like this big beefy thing that exists. And, you know, the point with it, with that is that the slab is something where you can basically lease an almost a seemingly infinite amount of compute space, as long as you've got the resources for it to spin up, you know, your, your little internet golems and have them do whatever you need them to do for you. Um, and, and then the permacomputer, the idea you know, that, that, that is forwarded in this piece is the idea um, that it could be a, a sophisticated machine, uh, but that it could be repairable and that it could be uh, energy efficient, um, that, that it would be something that you can hold in your hand, that, it, you know, that it's, that it's something that, that truly makes sense. And I find something about what we're talking about here to be connected to that, which is this idea of maybe we don't, you don't need unlimited compute space to do something or the, the most advanced new processor. And we need to think more, more uh, we need to think more about the, the affordances that uh, a processor of, you know, whatever <clears throat> scale uh, allows us to, to do. And we need to think more about the efficiency of our code. I know Rob, you, had to write your own drivers for for this project and and you know do, do a lot of other things because of custom components, but I, anyway, I, I'm, I'm I find this idea compelling that you have to you have to source your parts more carefully, and and that there's a lot of things that are available out there. Like, what's the what what is your sense of are, are people moving in this direction where they're finding out ways to use these these more available components efficiently, or are we all just going to sit around waiting and twiddling our thumbs until we hope that the world goes back to normal and we get all of these parts available again, and then we can make our badge toys and, and things like that. I haven't seen any examples uh, yet. Um, maybe people are working on stuff in secret, but I haven't seen any examples of people using uh, less capable um, controllers and uh, more available parts yet. But I'm, I'm hoping they're just, they're just kind of holding out right now and they're still in the development stage, but then we'll see some booming. 
Yeah, I think there's a uh, an interesting analogy about um, kind of like the life cycle of, of an industry. And I, I guess I'll, I'll make the parallel to um, like infrastructure becoming ubiquitous, right? Like power lines are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. We don't even notice them. Roads are everywhere. We don't even think about them because the way we get around is is on you know, motor vehicles and those things, you know, started to emerge when the, the technology was available. And then they entered, you know, what, what's called like the deployment stage of a, of an economic cycle where um, all the infrastructure is there and it's laid out and you don't even think about the underlying principles. So I think what's going to happen, you know, like software is kind of like in a deployment stage, meaning like software can be applied to just about anything. And there's even, you know, solutions coming out that are, are booked as no code, meaning that uh, the, the software exists, but it, it's not something you as like a user or a creator need to even think about. And what happens when, when things are in their deployment phases, um, that those things like finding the lowest cost solution um, to a problem, not over-engineering, take flight. And a, a good analogy to think about is like asphalt on roads. It's, it's by far not the most optimal material, but from a economic perspective, it makes the most sense. Uh, even though there's there's a lot of rework, I think that would eventually happen in hardware as it reaches its deployment phase. And a lot of the um, layers of abstraction that are being put into place with like, you know, our, our Duino for like the code to circuit ecosystem. Um, and then like your ecosystem tying together, like the API layers and everything like that, like ultimately that's going to result in, you know, most people who want to design a, a thing like a widget, like a, a badge, you know, as a piece of art or, you know, a, a connected um, coffee pot, uh, th those kind of things are all going to be made a lot easier because you're not even thinking about what's underlying. And once once there's a company that specializes themselves in to thinking about creating these larger orders of abstraction building blocks, they ultimately need to uh, reduce those to you know the most least functionality to from a capitalistic perspective be a, a profitable business, right? So. I think one other thing that might be cool as well, um, what Rudy was just saying made me think of this, but um, it's not like, I guess it's not even that like capable controllers are not even available. They've been used up in other devices. So I think about um, some of the older smartwatches that have ARM cores um, that people don't want to buy from AliExpress or whatever anymore. But like you pick up a bunch of those and, uh, repurpose those to then be your your badge or whatever where you're taking some of stuff that would is going to just sit around in a warehouse for the rest of its its life cycle um, and instead repurpose that and that's where you're going to find some of the the parts you might need to do whatever you want to design. Totally, and, you know, the whole reverse people, I guess, or whatever. Like I, I think about a lot of the. Um, like the router, home router hardware equipment that has been out, you know, Linksys and, and Cisco used to produce just massive boards that were overpowered to like what the spec was. And then the firmware was what controlled the features and everything. I think people have a lot of, of hardware sitting around that they can repurpose and do miles and leagues more than what they would be able to do with the device, you know, in its existing state. So it goes both directions probably. That's interesting. That seems to be where <clears throat> where the art comes in as well. I interviewed somebody, uh, a guy named Hayden Bayless for this podcast <clears throat> a couple of years ago, who's a potter. 
And, you know, potters have their own tools for, for, for molding and modifying the clay. Uh, but once you get to a certain point, you realize you, you, you've under, you, you know, you've mastered all of those tools. And at some point he started doing things like taking hacksaw blades to a, to a slab of clay that's spinning on his wheel. And nobody, that's not, that's not a traditional tool for, for playing with pottery or playing with clay. Uh, but it's, it's this idea of, of thinking about what your art or your craft or what you're doing is something, um, greater than what people traditionally do in industry thinking about other tools or resources that are available as um as as ways to exploit uh opportunities in in investigating what you know making badges is like in this case or you know uh, working with material in any other cases like as well i wonder so so we've got we've got the design of the badge we talk a lot of, about a little bit and how the the, the, the component shortages affected some of that <clears throat> and then and this is I think interesting for for people who um, you know are interested in the thoughtcon bag and badge in specific but I think it's also interesting for folks just who who want to see how how all of these shortages they don't just affect they don't just it's not just um, an effect of the components not being available and then having to change things. It affects everything downstream of component component shortages. It affects timelines, the fabricator that you, the person who's the, the group that's fabricating your uh, the house that's fabricating your boards that you want to work with. Why don't, why don't we talk a little bit about fabrication and you know how we ended up landing with um, the group that we did, and then some of the you know before the call we had mentioned uh, some of the uh, unexpected I guess surprises. That that came out of uh, after after the boards were fabricated and we can actually get our hands on them. Rudy, I think you might be good to help us kick off for this too. <laughs> yeah, I, I was yeah. there. Were so many things there, I didn't even know where to start. <laughs> right, so I think it's, uh, what, what's the what's the most most uh, penultimate question that we had to, to answer, like what, how we what, landed or how, what, how what we, we had landed, to do. How do we land at the house that we ended up choosing to fabricate these boards? what what did the like how did the components um issues that we were dealing with you know upstream from that affect how we were choosing uh you know who would fabricate these things and then i think maybe we we from there we can jump off into some of the uh the unexpected and uh, unpleasant surprises that we we dealt with um you know towards the end there too yeah so I guess I'll preface the whole how we landed with Absolute as a discussion about just the philosophy of, of ThoughtCon is keeping it as local as, as possible. So we want to have you know, the, the work done as, as, as local as we can and want to try to use vendors in the Chicagoland area and everything. We probably could have had a, a house, you know, probably not in China because they're probably sitting on the shore long weeks still right now. But if, uh, you know, we, um, if we used someone in, in Colorado or Portland or something very well could have gotten the project done for, you know, maybe the difference of the price of shipping, but really it, it ended up being like the flexibility of, of absolute, you know, both on helping us work with the inflation of the budget on the component side and offsetting that with, uh, you know, the, the labor costs to, to get access to the machine and have the, the parts hand placed and then just their 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 ability to work with us uh and collaborate on reaching out to brokers to find the right parts that we needed at our at a reasonable price and work for alternatives i think is in my mind what got us there it was such a um a frenzied experience that i honestly don't remember a lot of the decisioning that that went into it by and large but 
their their flexibility and partnership is really what what landed us there and the fact that they just happened to have one of their production facilities near o'hare and that met the criteria of uh the patrons right so if i could jump in really quick i think another interesting thing that happened was that all of our funding for the project came from thoughtcom but it came through uh, the institution that i teach at depaul and with component shortages so depaul typically has um, net terms. They don't pay people outright in advance. Um, and yet when uh, you have a, a, a house that's trying to buy all of your components up front so that they can fabricate your boards, they want that money in hand because they don't want to have to, to front the money, the funding for those those parts. And on top of that, the parts are vanishing, right? They're, they're, it's not like they're going to be there and they're going to sit there. And so we can wait to strike a deal between the house and DePaul or the or whatever the funder is in, in that project's case, you can't wait for that time. And so I think that was another area of tension that, that brought us, you know, uh, a lot of heartache for, for a number of months was just working out kind of the, the, the tension between we need to get these parts right away, but the way that business works is still the way that business used to work pre-pandemic, which is we're going to take as long as we need to to make sure that this gets done right. But if you take that long now, it affects everything much more dramatically than it used to. Um, but anyways, having said that, so so we 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 chose the house, we got the boards, uh, and then we had some other unexpected issues. So I think maybe if we talk about this real quick, and then it'd be awesome to talk about some of the fun stuff that the badge could do as well, because so far it's all been it's all been uh, heartache and and sorrows. <laughs> for- I mean, there's a there's a ton of wins. I mean, the fact that. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that we could keep pretty pretty much the original design, I feel like, is a huge win. Um, and yeah, I, I I had a drop off at the the very end of uh, right when we got into the thick of production um, due to personal reasons. But uh, but Rudy picked you and you and Jay picked up and uh, were able to see it through and and get whatever replacements or procurement necessary um but i think i think the fact that we got to the end with the initial design is a huge win um it was no easy feat but um but yeah i think what you were alluding to jay was a a week and a half out from from thoughtcon um you sent a text message to rudy and i and you said hey uh i'm trying to run this accelerometer sketch um should it be turning on? And, uh, and I know I freaked out quite a bit. Um, I first, I first tried to just like play it off as if you might've just been doing something weird. Um, maybe you're just drawing too much power. I mean, that also had a fair amount of concern, but I didn't think of it as being a, a, a very deep problem, um, that would cause us any headache. Um, unfortunately I was wrong. Um, I ended up running the same thing. I ended up running it even simpler. Uh, we placed it down to any time you tried to power the badge up from battery, it just would not run. Um, we thought it was a power issue that the batteries could not draw it. Uh, I eventually figured out we were going into bootloader mode um, and further going down that. Uh, so we were using the ESP. Was it that we were using the 86? 22? Uh, 32. Okay, we're using the SP32. Um, That's right, because it does have Bluetooth as well. Um, We're using the SP32, and 
there's certain pins that are used to certain GPIO pins that are used to set whether or not we're going into um, bootloader mode or just run straight from um, the the main memory address. Um, the way that we have that on the badge is there are two USB pins, um, DTR and RTS, that are used to control which mode we go into. So it can be flashed over USB without having any user interaction. You don't have to push any buttons to go into bootloader mode. It just does it all on its own. And I had done a clever thing that I was trying to do in order to, to get us able to also use those pins that you use for selection also overlap with some of the capacitive touch. And we needed all the capacitive touch pins we could use. Uh, unfortunately, my cleverness uh, left a little bit of a hole there where we left those pins floating and uh, the, the DTR and the RTS pins floating. And therefore, we had to make a last minute fix. Um, after uh, an afternoon of scratching my head and a lot of probing, uh, I finally figured out there were two uh, two very small uh, components, passive components that were next to each other. And one of them was the one side of either RTS or DTR. And the other one was uh, 3v3 uh, voltage. And what we needed to do is pull up, uh, I can't remember which one, RTS or DTR. Um, so it came down to being able conveniently to place uh, a slightly larger passive uh, 100 or 10K pull-up resistor that would be able to, we used, I think, like an 805 package that was able to fit from the one side of the one capacitive, passive component to the other side of the other one. So we, we did like a diagonal cross between two passive components. Um, it looks super clean. It looks planned. It was not, um, if we had tested things a little bit further, uh, it, we would not have had to have made this mistake. But uh, we got really lucky with what we were able to do in the, the assembly house was able to 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 do this work for a reasonable cost and saved our butts. Um, we can't thank them enough for, for being able to do that, especially so last minute. So we got really lucky there. Yeah, it definitely was was a lucky thing. I think one of my first uh, engineering-related internships, I worked for a company that created high frame rate uh, video cameras that were like PCI cards. And it goes to show you that these kind of mistakes can happen. You know, even in, in professional companies, they they had shipped some of these boards um, that that would reset given a, a specific processor that was installed. But what it meant for me as as a, a test intern was a good portion of um, an internship I actually spent. Uh, you know, with what's called peg wiring, bug wiring, basically um, from one resistor to a lead on the board with, with a little piece of bell wire and, and solder, um, over and over and over again on hundreds of units. And you know, what I learned most from that is that I never want that to be part of my career, which is why we, we thank, uh, the manufacturing shops for hiring the people that have the, the patience and fortitude to do that type of work. Um, and in my mind, it was going to be a fix similar to that. And, uh, I think the the time available uh, in the universe would not have allowed for that, but luckily we're able to have the the part be machine placed conveniently. So some serendipity there, but um, definitely uh, one of the most interesting challenges in the set of these projects that I've worked on for sure. Yeah, and th so we keep mentioning the 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 uh, the assembler as well, and. Um... Rudy, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about 
uh, maybe we should give them a shout out too. Uh, Rob, Rob's recommending it over here in the chat as well. Oh yeah, absolute, um, absolute, absolute uh, electronics. electronics. I, yeah, I thought I mentioned it earlier, but um, you know, if I didn't, it's absolute um, electronics out of. Uh, I think their headquarters Elk out Grove. of Milwaukee, but they also operate. Yeah, in Elk Grove here in Illinois near the airport. So I only mentioned that because you you're the one who found them, and that was yeah. uh, that was something that really saved us for a number of a number of many 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 reasons um so you know i got and i got to visit their facilities in Elk Grove. they're pretty nice so 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 we've got the badges made you know uh and they're in hand and we've got to get the firmware on and i don't know if most people know this but uh, you know at this point what you have is a bunch of people who will be sitting around the badges basically plugging them most of them are just plugging them into computers and pushing firmware up to each badge individually. And so if you've got that for about 2000 badges, that's a real big pain in the butt. And so I wanted to give a, a shout out real quick. Was there was some forward thinking, um, you know, on your part with, with how we might get the firmware uploaded without having to do this one-to-one -one connection with the computer. And then I, I, I want to, I want to use that as kind of a way to jump off, you know, in these last minutes we've got here and what, what people can do with this thing, because I think there's a lot of, you know, the, I, I really think this board has a lot of potential beyond just what people saw um, from it at, at the event. And there's a lot of excess boards that, um, you know, I'd, I'd love people to tinker with. So what, what do, I guess, number one, especially for people who are doing these badge things, what did we do that made getting the firmware on there so much easier? But then number two, what about, what, what, what is this thing capable of doing that I think a lot of people, um, you know, might be able to take advantage of if they've got one on their hands or if they want to get one on their hands, which I can. Yeah, for sure. So I, I guess start of the basics. O OTA is, is over the air updates and uh, you, <laughs> I give you too much credit to calling it any sort of foresight because it's really, uh, I think the result of a lot of battle scars. So for those folks who aren't in, in the badge life community, the, uh, Standard operating procedure typically when you have your project is to bribe your friends with pizza and beer to sit in front of a table full of computers for about seven to nine hours, um, plugging in a circuit board, hitting an enter button on a console uh, connected to a computer, and then uh, you know uploading that code, which takes a couple minutes, and then repeating that process hundreds of times over until you've done it thousands of times, which is um, I, I kind of draw it to the line that when you reach a certain age and you you start moving, you, you stop asking your friends to come over and help you move and you start hiring a moving service. So this was my uh, attempt to get us closer to that, uh, that moving service concept where um, you, we had some custom flash chips created um, for us. Um, and, and basically the process for that is... Uh, taking a sketch, sending it to like a supplier like DigiKey. And then for certain parts, they'll be able to program those on the reel and then send those out to you for a, a really reasonable fee. Something like, I think like for us, it ended up coming out to be about 25 cents per component, which is, uh, you know, six to $700 for the project. But for our time and sanity, I, th I think pays dividends multitudes, right? Um, so one of the parts that we had to custom make for this board was was the flash chip that contained our firmware that was able to talk to um, talk to Amazon S3 bucket, download the uh, 
final firmware that we wanted on the badge and then reprogram itself as it as it took its first boot up uh, and then it kind of retained that capability to continue to update itself over the air throughout the uh, conference. I think, you know, in the, in the years doing these things, a lot of our conference experience ends up being doing reflashing for people. So this helps get us away from that also where, you know, we can, we could be on our own, push something out, and then also one has to do is either reset their board or wait for it to connect to uh, to our server to be able to get some new updates or, or get a fix that might not have been caught in testing, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah and you guys had done that uh, in previous years, and I think that was, was part of the reason why we, we attempted to do it this time. Um, you had just done it as part of the fun of the conference where the stuff could update. And I think the using the SP32 where the flash is external um, lended the, the ability for us to, to run this on this production run. I think that saved a ton of time um, and sanity. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that we we utilized the capability before, but we didn't utilize it to kind of um, save ourselves the the effort and really accelerate the you know the pace of getting what 1800 of these things ready for prime time and you know i I think the other thing that we learned throughout the course of this is like the as long as you have a stable connection at at your venue or your event yeah and and everything is well tested you can by and large have them manufactured and probably just drop them off there as long as you can coordinate you know with with the event staff on what the network looks like um it's totally within the realm of reason to never have that problem again um if if everything is well well tested and well planned, so. So I think that's that's one lesson that people can take away, or one that people who make these things can take away is that there's, you know, there's code out there on GitHub right now for this project that that people could take a look at and take advantage of. Um, I think the other lesson that we can talk about probably is um, not to tell the conference organizer that they have the ability to push out alerts to all of the badges because they're hooked up to a similar the same Wi-Fi network. And Rob, I think you found yourself putting together, what was it on uh, the second day of the event, an emergency broadcast? What was that? Oh, yeah. I think, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely entertaining some uh, some pretty wild ideas, uh, one of which yeah. was the emergency broadcast sound. Uh, doot, doot, doot. Um, sorry for anybody listening. But <laughs> uh, we, had, we had to make sure that was was conveyed well enough, which what, what we were talking about. Um, yeah, we, we added that wild idea in there. Um, I had my own sadistic plans of adding Rick Roll in there. And uh, we also annoyed enough people with the, the circus sound startup. Um, but I think uh, before we had, I guess before when uh, when you and Rudy had had run this, um, when I, the IRC thing was, was not as well known, there was less people. But now that... I think our team's released, um, we've released our own write-ups mentioning this <laughs> this IRC server and enough people have now kind of caught on to know that there's going to be an IRC component to this. And uh, yeah, it looks like there was a lot of people who had fun just logging on. And um, if you listen long enough, then you start to see what commands are as we either test them or other people um, who know the commands list them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's. I think that makes the event. It, it, it's. It first of all, I think that's something different that I don't know a lot of the other badge badges do or or you know are capable of doing because they don't have access to their own, you know, Wi-Fi network for the entire venue or whatever else. 
is is this immersive component of uh, you know you've, there's an IRC server out there that if you can gain access to it you can use it to help con control the badges and and that means that everybody's participating in this this like this meta not metaverse of course because whatever but this you know this this meta event that's happening on the internet somewhere one of the things that I thought was funny was that Emmanuel Goldstein who is the the founder of 2600 was uh, gave a keynote at the event and part of his keynote was talking about how um, IRC eventually became a, like a toxic place and how we have to you know be careful of our speech and as he was doing that his his badge was making the emergency broadcast system sound because somebody was spamming the IRC channel with the emergency broadcast man not any of us of course but but you know and then he said like this damn thing's been going off this whole time and he turned it off and i thought you know how how, how on the nose is it to have exactly the problem the thing that he's talking about also be the thing that that leads him to, to frustration he doesn't even know it's leading it to that so so i think that's that's an interesting you know component of a uh, uh, thing on the badge what what other things can people do with this thing that they if if they they've got one in their hands they they might not know it's capable of? Yeah, so there's a there's a lot of different fun. Uh, we we designed this to make it a bit of a dev board. Um, I think I always see badges like that, and I like when the creators do that um, to people enjoy it during the conference and are able to take it home and hopefully play with it more and learn uh, with it. So on the badge we have. Uh, the accelerometer. So, well, I, I guess the first part you'd see is the LEDs. There's uh, a ton of RGB LEDs on the badge. Um, often modes that we would see around the conference involve the accelerometer where they'd have the the audio going with however the accelerometer's movement was was playing into, into effect. Uh, and there's also a buzzer that goes with it that you can change the, the frequency output for um, to create plenty of fun uh, 8-bit sounding tracks. I guess they're more like uh, binary sounding tracks. You just have on-off, really, that you're modulating and not. you don't have any kind of 8 bits of, of clarity. Um, then there is uh, there's capacitive touch. Um, there's eight different capacitive touch buttons. Um, we really had to work hard to, to get all eight working, as we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, what am I missing? Uh, the the six pins. Oh, that's right. Uh, and we do have the the secondary add-on, uh, the SAO add-on at the top with the six pins, um, and they break out to the true uh, output of those. Uh, where you would have you've got your VCC, your ground, you have I squared C uh, going out to those pins. Um, so there's a clock at a data line, and then there's also uh, UART lines that are routed to them as well. Um, it was never really talked about in too much detail, but at once upon a time, it was thought of that the, the secondary add-on would have UART broken out as you could either use it with UART or GPIO pins. So it has two of those that are routed um, for any kind of breaking out fun that people would want to have. Yeah, and don't, don't forget the radios. Uh, so it's a full Wi-Fi, full gigahertz spectrum radio. Really, you can do more than just, just Wi-Fi and Bluetooth on there. I think when, when people... One thing people don't realize about a lot of the projects in ThoughtCon is, you know, part of our goal has always been to try to get like either emerging technologies or existing technologies in there to use it as like a diagnostic. I think our very first one was a um, 
a Zigbee radio based one. And it was kind of a, a spectrum that uh, it's on the same spectrum as Wi-Fi, but the protocol has just then started to get used more readily in like industrial control devices and everything. And if you want to try to get a, a diagnostic system for a Zigbee radio, they tend to be in the hundreds of dollars um, for the very rudimentary one. Uh, and, you know, but just by virtue of being at, at Foxconn four, I think it was, uh, you know, you had a full, zigbee radio diagnostic platform that you could take advantage of yeah good point about the radios because that also brings up one of the one of the projects i wanted to implement but i was happy to see somebody else did um at the conference was making this since it is the the badge itself is in the shape of an nes controller um somebody took that and implemented as a bluetooth uh controller that you could use connect to over bluetooth to your to your pc your um computer and uh, ideally your phone or something like that, anything, uh, and be able to play video games with. And I think that would that was a cool project that I wanted to add to this um, as like a hidden gem, but I didn't have time and I was happy to see somebody else did it at the conference. Awesome. So we've gone through, we've gone through pretty much, you know, everything that I think covers the badge. We've gone through components, sourcing. We've talked about getting the, the badges manufactured uh, you know, we talked a little bit about what some of its applications could be and some of the things that people can do with it. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to do? We're, we're about it. We're a little over an hour now, and I wanted to make <laughs> sure that uh, we were able to get in anything that you guys want to shout out that you're working on or any other things you want to tell folks. But is there anything you wanted to, to close on with the badge before we, we, we start closing this out? I think if there's anybody out there who has a badge, um, and ends up hacking on it at all, adding new features or functionality to it. Uh, definitely uh, upload it. Uh, well, if you have a Twitter, upload a Twitter and an at ThoughtCon, because then it'll luckily, I'll see it that way, um, probably easiest. But I would love to see anything that people end up putting together any way that you end up using this. Yeah, and if you're making badges, come, you know, follow us for design patterns. I guess you could say we, um, I think what, what I've learned the most out of this past series of projects is we've, we've got this like system that's super flexible for uh, designing and we can take it in a lot of different directions and kind of simplifying and not re-engineering it year after year um, is, is going to make the process easier. And then, you know, with, with the advent of this uh, over the air updating, it just makes the process um, a lot less arduous. And those are all things that we're willing to share with the community for, for those that are interested. Awesome. So if we're going to close out, uh, is there anything before we close out, is there anything that you guys are working on now related to anything we talked about or anything else that you're working on creatively that you want to shout out? Any places that people can go to find you, uh, find the things that you're working on right now as well? Yeah, I'm just working on uh, I'm working on decompressing right now. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long, a long two years, um, especially working on this badge. And I think I, I'm just taking a break right now and and just mentally decompressing, uh, enjoying some joys in my personal life. Um, but if people want to find me, I don't really post too much, um, but I am on Twitter, uh, medium rare, rare spelled R-E-H-R. Um, that's probably the best way to get uh, in contact with me and just to see what I'm working on. Yeah, and uh, similar for me, uh, not super active on on the socials, but uh, if if I am mentioned, it does get pushed to me. So at I-R-A-R-S-E-C on Twitter and Rudy at workshop88.com is probably the place that you'll find most of my projects. And um, 
my uh, hackaday.io profile is is tied to the same email, and a lot of people will, you know, in random intervals, reach out about previous badge projects through that um, that channel, and that's a great way to to find what I'm working on. All right, gentlemen, thank you for for joining me. I hope people find this uh, informative. This is some pretty heavy. It was, it was an interesting, heavy lifting project for the last two years, and I'm I'm glad we were able to do something with it. Yeah, thank you so much yeah. for having us. It was it was a pleasure to work with you both. Yeah, always a, always a fun time to chat. All right. And that wraps it up for another session of This Should Work. Big thanks to Rob Rarig and Rudy Ristich for joining me. As always, if you haven't already, subscribe to This Should Work on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and until next time, bye-bye.